The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And for that reason, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Lucy Martinez-Sullivan. She is the inaugural executive director of Feed the Truth, a new nonprofit organization that seeks to advance truth, trust, and transparency in the food system. Feed the Truth is committed to realizing a food system that prioritizes the future of our planet, equity, and people's health over short-term corporate wealth. Ms. Sullivan is formerly the founding executive director of 1000 Days, a nonprofit advocacy organization working to improve maternal and young child nutrition in the U.S. and around the world. She also currently serves as the co-chair of the Global Nutrition Report, which is the world's foremost publication on the state of nutrition. Ms. Sullivan holds an impressive MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and a BA with distinction from the University of Florida. Ms. Sullivan smartly recognizes that food is at the center of some of the world's biggest challenges and that we can no longer afford a business-as-usual approach to a food system that is fueling a health epidemic and a climate crisis. Welcome, Lucy. It's great to be here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction, Melinda. Well, your work is truly impressive. And I have to ask you, before we dive into this great new report called Draining the Big Food Swamp, and we're going to focus our conversation largely on that report, but I like to get to know my guests a little bit before we dive in. And tell me, you've got this wonderful business degree. How did you launch from that area of focus to one of food, nutrition, and health? I really wanted to join a organization that was committed to helping people and Thousand Days presented that opportunity. I was so excited to lead an organization that was focused on improving maternal infant and young child nutrition. And during my time there, I really saw the opportunity to challenge the status quo when it came to the way that products, especially for young children, were marketed. One of the the things I was most proud of at 1000 Days was the work that we did around breastfeeding and supporting and protecting breastfeeding. And it was in that work that I saw the, the power of infant formula manufacturers and the way that they were marketing products against the WHO code of marketing of, of breast milk substitutes. And, and there needed to be more accountability around the, the actions of, of this industry. And so when the opportunity to join Feed the Truth came about, I saw this tremendous chance at making a huge impact in marrying my business skills with my passion for food and nutrition and holding the food industry accountable for some of their egregious actions and really driving greater change Mm. uh, in the food system. I'm so glad you mentioned breastfeeding and infant formula because it's ironic. My first awareness moment came when I was working at the University of Missouri in Extension, and I learned that every single country except the United States that attended the 1983 World Health Assembly 
ratified the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes, also known as infant formula. And the reason stated why the U.S. didn't sign on to that was because it wasn't good for business. And I realized right then that we had a problem with money influencing public health. And what could be more important than starting with infant health? So your launch into Food the Truth from that experience, I think, is truly important. And I am dedicated to to pulling back the curtains and raising awareness about just how powerful the industry is in controlling policy. And we've got a lot of work to do. Your report that looks at the deep food swamp and how the food industry has manipulated policy is brilliant. I want us to talk about the role of food trade associations and how they work. Yeah. So in draining the the big food swamp, our report that we just launched at Feed the Truth, we really wanted to understand how the food industry exerts its power in Washington, D.C., and what we found by, by focusing in on trade associations what, was that this, the food industry has built this network of powerful organizations that they use to influence elections, lobby on their behalf, and really hide their true agenda. And it's interesting because as much scrutiny as big tech and, and big oil get in terms of lobbying power, the big food industry doesn't really get as much attention, but their enormous political clout has an impact on our daily lives. So what the report found, Melinda, was that the the so-called big food swamp is wide. There's almost uh, 6,300 IRS classified food industry associations. So that's a huge number. And the top 100 associations represent $5 billion in assets. So it's, it is, I think it just gives you a sense of the amount of money that these groups control. But the swamp is also deep. Only a handful of these trade associations account for most of the lobbying and political donations. Our analysis found that only three groups account for half the total lobbying spending, and that's the Consumer Brands Association, the National Restaurant Association, and the American Beverage Association. And only three groups account for half of the campaign spending. So it was really interesting to have this picture of these powerful industry associations and how they use their influence and the pay-to-play system, quite frankly, to do the bidding of some of the world's largest corporations. Mm. And you know what's so interesting to me, too, is, of course, you've got a list of those trade associations in your report, and you've targeted the first three. I kind of went down the list and I looked at the top five because when we talk about food, we also have to talk about agriculture. And while the top three are largely food-oriented, the fourth is the American Farm Bureau Federation, and the fifth is Crop Life America, which is a trade association for the pesticide industry. And so when you start looking at their lobbying expenditures, it becomes clear as day to know why it has been so hard to get legislation passed that would really protect public health, such as paying food and farm workers a living wage, or stopping the routine use of antibiotics in livestock agriculture because of their role in driving antibiotic resistance. And then there's also been the issue of why can't we get sustainability folded into the U.S. dietary guidelines? And you know, you step back and you think, why can't we move forward on these important issues? And then you see, oh my gosh, the follow the money story. Yes, that's exactly right, Melinda. And our premise at Feed the Truth is that 
The food industry opposition has been the major impediment to really transformative policy change on food and agriculture. And the food system that we have in this country, and, and quite frankly, globally, is a result of the food industry exerting their enormous political power. And these associations are one vehicle for them to do so. So the lobbying is quite extensive, right? So we found that the largest 20 food industry groups, and, and you're right, these do include uh, some of the big ag groups, spent over 300 million in lobbying over the last 10 years. They spent 34 million in trying to influence elections, right, in terms of campaign contributions. And just on the basis of the 2020 election alone, the entire agribusiness industry spent 170 million on campaign contributions. So not just the trade association, but the companies that are part of the trade association. Linda, that's nearly four times the amount of money that the defense industry spends and certainly on par uh, with what the oil and gas industry spend. So I think there's this enormous scale of political influence that is, is being brought to bear that impacts, as you noted, everything from the food that ends up on our children's lunch trays to the way that workers in the, in the food industry are treated and are paid. The National Restaurant Association has been a, a vocal opponent on increases to the minimum rate wage. They oppose the Raise the Wage Act. And we know that increasing the minimum wage is one of the most powerful tools we have in this country to combat hunger, food insecurity, poverty, and inequality. You know, it's so interesting to me because it doesn't seem that the restaurant industry can recognize that by paying their workers a living wage, they would keep sick workers from coming in and leading to large foodborne illness outbreaks because people feel so desperate. Yes, they're sick, but gosh, if they don't go into work, they're not going to make this tiny wage. Many of them don't have access to health benefits. You'd think that they'd recognize that there's a backlash against them by not providing more compassionate care for their workers. Yeah, I think one of the most heartbreaking stories, quite frankly, is around the way that workers are treated in the meatpacking mm. plants. And we we know that the lobbying on the part of these large meatpacking companies directly led to the spread of COVID among these communities uh, where these plants were located. And there's a direct consequence and a human cost to the lobbying. The, the, the meat industry lobbied the Trump administration to increase line speeds. And that, of course, led to workers working longer hours in cramped conditions that they already were working in, but made it even worse. So there's just so much I think that we need to better understand around the political might of this industry and, and, the, and the lobbying and the campaign contributions, because these things have to be disclosed. It's only one piece of information that we have to paint a picture. And so one of the things we're calling for at Feed the Truth with this report is greater disclosure. We want these trade associations to disclose their members, to disclose what they're lobbying for and against and what they're spending because we really believe in the power of transparency. We have to make visible this massive iceberg of political influence that the food industry uses to control policy. Right. And there are so many pieces that you pull out related to these expenditures. And I want to just say that there are two pieces of this report. One is the executive summary, 
and the other is the full report. And I actually recommend going to the full report because what you've done is you've given some wonderful background about these trade associations. And so not only is the money going to politicians, especially those that serve on key committees like the Agriculture Committee, but you also look at sponsored research and you look at the history of these associations. For example, I was really interested to see that the Consumer Brands Association used to be the Grocery Marketing Association until they had some negative press, perhaps, around their position on GMO labeling. And that, of course, is something that over 90% of consumers wanted GMO labeling. We fought tooth and nail for it, finally got a very weak bill passed, which allows labeling, but not really the kind of labeling I think that consumers expected. So a lot of processed foods, for example, that began with genetically modified crops will not be labeled because of their ultra-processing endpoint. But I find it interesting that if you look at what these associations do, look at the sponsored research. For example, titanium dioxide. So the Consumer Brands Association funded the Michigan State University of Nebraska study. So two universities, highly respected, did a study casting doubt. This is one of their tools, right? You cast Mm -hmm. doubt on efforts to ban a whitener, which is in so many of the food products that we use, as well as toothpaste, frosting. You buy a white powdered donut, you're eating titanium dioxide. Gum coatings that are white, titanium dioxide. But the International Agency for Research on Cancer lists this compound as a possible carcinogen. So it's not just the donations to the legislators. It's also this infiltration into university research and universities are struggling because they don't get enough public funding. So they want to have these private public partnerships. Can you talk a little bit about that and pulling back the curtain on those relationships? Absolutely. And and I think this is a frontier that we're very interested in exploring at Feed the Truth, the use and the funding of science and scientific research and the sponsorship of academics and universities, because it is a a key way that the industry uses to influence policy, to shape the narratives, to shape perceptions, both at the policymaker level and, of course, at the consumer level. So you're right. It's not just the money spent on lobbying and campaign contributions. It's the PR that these groups employ. It is the funding of of research. And, And you mentioned the one for Consumer Brands Association, the artist formerly known as the Grocery Manufacturers of America. But the American Beverage Association is another group that we profile, and they sponsor research to try to discredit the links between added sugars and the increasing prevalence of obesity, for example. They funded 26 studies that showed that there was absolutely no link between sugary drinks and obesity or diabetes, which of course contradicts a a whole body of scientific evidence that does show these links. So they're really muddying the waters in terms of the science in terms of our understanding of of what's driving diet-related diseases and other issues. And they use these so-called scientific studies to go and and meet with policymakers and try to advance their own positions or block things like beverage taxes. So this is a key strategy. And I think we need to be much more aware of the various tools that the industry uses. And again, they use these trade associations as vehicles to do the dirty work. So you have companies like Pepsi, for example, and we focus on Pepsi because they're a member of of the three 
trade groups that we profile, which are the biggest lobbying vendors. And Pepsi talks about its commitment to supporting Black communities and, and its solidarity with Black Lives Matter and its, and its commitment to being a sustainable company. So they do that on the one hand with all this PR and, and media attention that they try to get. But on the other hand, they are members of these trade associations that are actively trying to kill the efforts to increase the minimum wage, which we know would have huge positive impacts on, on communities of color, given how many people of color work in the food system. And they're fighting tooth and nail against soda taxes, which we know these companies market and target black and brown teens, youth, people with ads for, for soda, with, for ads with ads for junk food. And so I mean, I think this trying to pull back the curtain on these trade associations, who's behind them and, and how they exert their power to do the dirty work on behalf of these big food companies that are trying to, I think, convince all of us that they're good corporate citizens is, is something we're, we're really interested in, in doing more of. Exactly. Let me take one break because we're halfway through and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Lucy Martinez Sullivan. She is the inaugural executive director of Feed the Truth, a new nonprofit organization seeking to advance truth, trust, and transparency in the food system. And we are talking about their brand new hard-hitting report about big food, the big food swamp, and how do we truly drain it. Well, I want to just get back to the American Beverage Association for a moment, because you were talking about how the soft drink industry in particular targets people who are of color. And many years ago, I was working on childhood obesity issues, and I launched into some media literacy work, uh, helping to show youth how they were targeted by the soft drink industry. And in particular, it was a Pepsi ad and you saw their script and who they wanted to choose to be in their advertisement. It was an attractive young Hispanic boy and younger than teen, beautiful, smiling white teeth, where we know that soft drinks, of course, harm children's teeth. But that was going to be the person chosen for their advertisement. And I think the more that we pull back the curtain to reveal not only the money going to lobbyists, going to legislators, the political contributions, the related organizations, the all of this insidious reach into our publicly funded institutions, the better off I think we'll really be, as, as you mentioned, to preserve our democracy and restore some public health. But I want to talk about the American Beverage Association, too, with regard to their related organizations and the very clever names that they give themselves. So the word choice comes up a lot. And, you know, Americans like to have choice, right? That's part of our freedom to have choice. And so wouldn't you know, two out of three of the related organizations have choice in their title. So Americans for Food and Beverage Choice, American Beverage Association Fund for Consumer Choice, and the American Beverage Foundation for a Healthy America. I think that's an oxymoron. I really don't think that a healthy America can be drinking soft drinks on any regular basis. That's right. And I think these trade associations do a brilliant job in trying to frame the terms of some of these 
public health issues, right? So freedom and choice and wanting to provide consumers with information. They say that they want to do that, but you have them lobbying on the other side to against mandatory front of pack labeling or greater clarity around what's in our food. And they'd rather advocate for voluntary frameworks or voluntary labeling measures, but tell the American public and tell policymakers that they are advocates for consumers having the information they need to make the choices that they want. American Beverage Association is legendary in framing sugar-sweetened beverage taxes as grocery taxes. So leading people to believe that they, when they go to the grocery store, they're going to pay a lot more money for all their groceries, when in fact, of course, we know the taxes are, are specifically focused only on sugar-sweetened beverages, and the taxes, the, the revenue from the taxes actually can go to fund critical public health measures. We are, as a country, we know we underfund public health and attacks on sugar-sweetened beverages can go a long way in producing revenue that can be reinvested in communities and, and particularly, you know, communities of color and on initiatives that, that can help support communities of color to be healthier and have greater opportunities. I think on the agriculture side, you know, some of the groups try to position themselves as, you know, these small family farms and they're, they're really advocating for the little guy. The National Restaurant Association wants you to believe that they're advocating for that mom and pop restaurant, that pizza shop around the corner that we all know and love. The reality is that these trade associations are doing the bidding of massive global corporations, the likes of Nestle, the likes of Cargill, ADM, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, right? These are not necessarily trade organizations that are fighting for the little guy. They are, they pretend that they do, they say that they do, but really it's the big guys, the big corporations that are calling the shots. Mm -hmm. And during the COVID bailouts, who got the money? It wasn't the small mom and pop restaurants. It was the large chain restaurants that got the bulk of the dollars. That's exactly right. There were big bailouts for national restaurant chains as part of the COVID economic relief. Well, close to 20% of the smaller eating establishments closed permanently. So it really is, I think, an example of the power that these big corporations have in Washington. They're writing the rules of the food system. They are there with their hands out to get relief for their big member corporations. And what allows them to do that? The money that they spend on campaign contributions. It's a pay-to-play system in the United States, right? We, mm -hmm. we know this. And we've tolerated this. And I think we have to ask ourselves why we've tolerated this. And, and one of the things I want this report to do is really to help people, people that care about food, people that work on food, that are passionate about food system change, to understand that progress to a healthier, more equitable, more sustainable food system requires that we actually change the rules around how our democratic system operates. So getting the food movement to care about legislation such as the For the People Act, which is this massive sweeping bill that's before Congress right now that would strengthen our democracy in terms of voting rights, but also in terms of greater transparency on who's funding political ads, who's funding dark money groups, and tightening ethics rules around members of Congress and the president. One of the things we were calling for is for Biden to close the revolving doors. 
80% of the lobbyists that work for the top three trade associations that we profiled are what we call revolvers, people who have been going from government to industry, and then sometimes back to government again. And that has a very pernicious effect because you've got industry basically embedding their interests in government through these revolvers. And again, this is something that we've tolerated. There have been efforts to close revolving doors. And, and I think that you know, every administration, even the Trump administration, surprisingly, makes pledges to do so. But in reality, the actual implementation of that has been very, very weak. And I think we have to find ways for these corporate interests to get out of policymaking and not to become entrenched in policymaking because it's a detriment to our democracy but it's also a detriment to our health when we think about the kind of food policy, the food and agriculture policy we have in this country. Yeah. And you were so wise to recognize that food is really at the heart of so many of our key issues, existential threats truly to our survival on this planet. Yeah, I'm curious about the name of the report, Draining the Big Food Swamp. Was that inspired by former President Trump's deepening of the swamp? In some ways it was, but really we know the term food swamp. Those of us working in, in the food movement and, and that follow this issue, we know that food swamps are places where there's a glut of unhealthy food options and fast food restaurants, right? And the food swamp in Washington, D.C. is this glut of big corporate giants that are part of the food industry that sort of control aspects of our policymaking. And yes, uh, you know, Trump, of course, very famously did call for draining the food swamp, but he only deepened it. I do want to note that the swamp and this kind of, you know, big money in politics is a bipartisan issue. So it existed before Trump got there and Trump made it worse. And it still exists now in the Biden administration. And, and we're really calling on the Biden administration to drain the swamp, to take the actions that it needs to take to close the revolving doors, to pass legislation, to get money out of politics. The swamp will fight back, of course, but greater political courage and political leadership is needed to do the kinds of reforms that we need, that this food system needs in order to be healthier and more sustainable. We're also calling on companies to open their books, to show us who they're funding, what campaign donations they're making, and disclose the totality of the political giving. This is an issue that, of course, came into the spotlight with the insurrection in January and you know that terrible day. And you had many companies stepping up and saying, you know, we're going to put a pause on our political giving because they didn't want to be associated with giving money to members of Congress who were voting to foment this insurrection, for example, or vote against a free and fair election. And so we're calling on companies to really just not pause their giving, but actually stop their giving entirely. And same thing with the trade associations. Well, Lucy, unfortunately, our time has evaporated as I knew it would. But I want to thank you so much for this report, Draining the Big Food Swamp. And I will make sure that we provide a link to that and to the Feed the Truth website. I will also provide a link to your excellent op-ed that you wrote titled, We Need to Get Food Industry Dollars Out of Politics to Save Our Democracy. It's that important. 
And in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Lucy Martinez-Sullivan, inaugural executive director of Feed the Truth, a new nonprofit organization seeking to advance truth, trust, and transparency in the food system. And again, the report that we have been discussing is called Draining the Big Food Swamp. Lucy, thank you so much for your time and all of your excellent work. Thank you, Melinda. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today.